All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We start today with the plan to distribute a COVID-19 vaccine in Canada. We are nearing the end of this terrible year called 2020. It will go down in infamy as the year of COVID. Now, here's the exciting thing, though. Could the year 2021 be remembered as the year of the COVID-19 vaccine? The year we defeat this pandemic, we immunize the world against this virus. That is very exciting prospect. Now, there are some very positive trial results on the vaccines that are being developed right now, notably the Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna vaccine. There are many others being developed. But when will Canadians get this vaccine? Now, Justin Trudeau's government has indeed signed contracts with the biggest vaccine producers, which is great. But the Prime Minister admitted this week, the countries that produce these vaccines will want to distribute the vaccines to their own people first. Have a listen. Canada no longer has any domestic production capacity for vaccines. Um, We uh, used to have it uh, decades ago, but um, we no longer have it. Uh, Countries like the United States, Germany and the UK uh, do have domestic pharmaceutical facilities, which is why um, they're obviously going to prioritize helping their citizens first. Okay, Trudeau under a lot of pressure in Ottawa this week over the timing of a vaccine rollout in Canada. Let's talk about that now with my guest Don Davies. He is the NDP MP for Vancouver Kingsway. He's the NDP health critic. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Thanks a lot for coming on. Great to be with you, Mike. Okay, what do you think about Trudeau's comments this week that he says he's got these signed, sealed contracts with these vaccine producers, but, hey, they're going to have to distribute in their home countries first? Well, it's uh, that's very concerning. It's, it's, it's puzzling, and it's, uh, frankly, it's, it's a complete about-face. Mike, I'm staring right now at a press release from Prime Minister Trudeau that he issued on August 31st, and this is what he said. Uh, he, it was uh, when he announced funding to establish uh, uh, a new manufacturing facility at uh, the NAC, uh, National Research Council lab in Montreal. And this is what he said. The new building will enable the National Research Council to increase vaccine manufacturing to up to 2 million doses per month by next year. This will help ensure our country's ability to produce enough doses of the vaccine for Canadians who need them such as frontline workers, long-term, long-term care workers, and those at risk of becoming seriously ill if they contract COVID-19. So in August, he was telling Canadians that we're putting money into making sure that Canada can actually domestically produce the vaccine so that we will accelerate access to Canadians, because obviously if you produce the vaccine here, we'll get it quicker. And then not even 90 days later, he's telling Canadians we don't have the capacity. So hmm. uh, I, I, I still have been calling on the government to explain that. 180 degree about face and i'm not hearing anything about it okay one of the questions i think that's hanging out there is that the government has signed a a lot of contracts with vaccine producers do you know if those contracts stipulate that we would have canada would have the rights to manufacture these vaccines in our own country or do the contracts say that we'll take we'll take delivery of vaccines that are produced elsewhere do we know uh that's an excellent question mike well i'm 99 percent sure we don't so we've signed seven contracts with major vaccine manufacturers. That's what Canada has done. And uh, and by the way, those contracts have not been made public and they've not been disclosed, which is one of the reasons that right. I joined with my conservative colleagues to demand production of those contracts redacted for appropriate 
you know, confidentiality, but so we can see the details. But last Friday, we had the minister and senior staff come to health committee, Mike, and I asked that very question you asked, and they told me that we don't have the, the right to produce vaccines in Canada negotiated in a single one of those seven contracts. Wow. And, and that's, that, that is why I'm saying this is a colossal act of incompetence, because other countries have done that. Brazil, Japan, Australia, India, even Putin's Russia has negotiated with those vaccine manufacturers the licensing agreement to produce the vaccine in the country if and when they're, produ- they're, uh, they're authorized. But Canada didn't. And again, I'm hearing crickets from the government as to why they would have missed such an obvious contractual term. Okay, it's a really important point because Canadians are anxious, of course, to get this vaccine. And there's been so much exciting, positive news about the development of these vaccines so far. And then you look in other countries, like in the United States, they're talking about an initial rollout of the vaccine there on December 12th. December, like like just over two weeks from now. So Trudeau was asked this week, what is the timeline here for Canada? When will Canadians get this vaccine? Let me play this here for you, Don. This is Trudeau speaking about the timeline for vaccines for Canadians. The very first vaccines that roll off an assembly line in a given country are likely to be given to citizens of that particular country. But shortly afterwards, they will start honouring and and delivering on the contracts that they signed with other countries, including with Canada. We've secured millions of doses of the vaccines, of the various vaccine candidates around the world, and we're expecting to start receiving those doses uh, in the first few months of uh, 2021. Okay. Does that give you any comfort or confidence there that Canadians will get this vaccine early in the new year, Don Davies? Well, somewhat. I mean, I mean, what it does confirm is we are behind, which is a point we've been making. Uh, and it's not just the U.S., Mike. There's other countries uh, are planning to start vaccinating in December as well. Uh, I think it's kind of misleading of the Prime Minister because at the Health Committee, again, I asked for a specific date uh, for when we're going to receive vaccines as well. And the answer I got was, we have secured 6 million doses by the end of March 31st, by the end of March. So uh, that's it. That's what we have. Now, if vaccines require two doses, that means we'll have enough vaccines to vaccinate uh, 3 million Canadians, which is barely 10% of our population, by April. Now, that's, there's a big difference between getting vaccines in January and getting vaccines in late March. And this government has been absolutely re- resisting revealing any kind of details and i don't understand why they're so secretive about this you know all canadians want to know mike is how many vaccines are we going to get and when and what is the process for vaccinating vaccinating these are questions that the opposition has been asking for months and uh geez you think we'd be asking we're asking for a state secret here uh and we, we the fact that we don't get these clear answers leads to a lot of confusion and a lot of suspicion frankly on my part that they've negotiated poorly in these contracts and we are going to get fewer vaccines in other countries and we're going to get them later and i think the liberals are stalling releasing the documents which is why we've been so insistent on demanding them so we can see for ourselves what exactly they've negotiated speaking to ndp mp don davies he's he's the ndp health critic in in the house of commons it's it's troubling especially when you look at other countries like the united states the united kingdom that have plans to roll out the vaccines in december and Canada just kind of largely silent on the distribution plan here. Let me play another clip here for you of Trudeau speaking this week. Here he is talking about uh, the timeline for a vaccine again. Trudeau. 
it is premature to start, you know, crossing out, circling dates on a calendar or saying that this vaccine is going to arrive in this amount uh, on this day in this community, uh, because there's still a lot of work to do between now and then. But we're on it. Okay, he says we're on it. But other countries have got dates, right? How come we don't have dates? I don't know. That's a great question as well. I mean, the U.S. announced the date of November 15th. And I think it's, again, a little bit, um, I think it's a little bit uh, cute of the Prime Minister to be, ref- to be talking about this this way. We understand that a vaccine's not been approved yet. What we're saying is, let's get our plan ready for when one is. So the right, U.S., right. for instance, said they would be ready November 15th. So if a vaccine were ready, that, that's the de- deadline that they had, and they worked a, a plan with the states. They knew who was going to vaccinate, how the vaccines were going to roughly... When you, say, when, you say, when you say November 15th, you mean they're ready now, the plan's in place yes. now, yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And uh, we don't even know, for instance, who's going to do the vaccinations. I met with the BC Pharmacy Association several times this month. They would be an ideal, obvious partner, you would think. Uh, they, do, they deliver a lot of flu shots. Uh, they haven't been contacted yet. So, you know, if we are going to vaccinate millions of Canadians, and I hope we do, um, that's a colossal effort. We know that we, we ran out of flu uh, shots this year. It's a, we're going to have a colossal project to vaccinate millions of Canadians. And I still can't tell you as the NDP health critic nationally, who's going to do the vaccinations. Well, that should be clearly established by now, in my view. And that we're not hearing those details either. Thanks very much for coming on this morning. My pleasure, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. There's another pandemic out there cheating at colleges and universities. Could it be on the rise during COVID-19? Academic integrity experts flagging a lot of academic misconduct here, plagiarism, falsifying information, submitting work completed by someone else, including custom essay writing services, and sharing test questions and answers. Yeah, it is going on, including right here at the University of British Columbia. This is an amazing story. UBC investigating cheating on a first-year math exam. Uh, the professor there put out a note to all the students in this course. I'm, I'll read from it here. I'm extremely disappointed to tell you there were over 100 cases of cheating on a midterm Math 100 exam. We're currently investigating these, and if confirmed, the students involved will receive a zero for the course, not just for the midterm, for the course. And I will recommend their expulsion from UBC. UBC investigating now these reports of cheating on this math midterm. Okay, is cheating on the rise here, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic? What a great guest I've got for you, Professor Sarah Eaton from the University of Calgary. She is one of Canada's leading experts on academic integrity. I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Hi, thanks for coming on. Hi, thanks for the invitation. Okay, so we got a 100 students here at UBC apparently accused of cheating. I'm sure this doesn't surprise you. Is this kind of thing on the rise? Absolutely. We've seen this at schools across provinces, across the country, and across the world during the COVID-19 crisis. Cheating has skyrocketed. Yeah, why is that happening during COVID? Is it because it's easier to cheat if you're working, uh, working remotely? You know, I think part of the problem is that, you know, profs haven't been trained to teach online. They've taken the tests and assignments that they were doing in their face-to-face classes. They've plunked them into an online environment and expected students to act as if they were sitting in exam halls when normal online behavior involves sharing, right? Who among us 
hasn't shared a meme, uh, a photo, a video, something. Online file sharing is normal behavior, and yet we're making students, uh, you know, the bad guy here for doing what you and I and students and everybody does every day when we share things online. I think one of the suspicions I've read about in this UBC case is, is it possible that students could be sharing test answers online? And if you think about it, if you're doing a test remotely online, you don't have a professor looking over your shoulder, wouldn't it be a very easy matter for a student to open up another window on a, on a web browser and look at answers, test answers that of have been course. posted by somebody else? Yeah. Yeah, of course. I mean, you and I get together with a couple of our friends, and I say, okay, you do questions one through five. I'll do questions six through ten. We'll post our answers in a Google Doc, and then we'll copy and paste from each other. That that can be done in a matter of seconds. So easy. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it does seem very simple. Is is it difficult to catch this kind of stuff? I I know universities are developing algorithms and software to sort of catch catch students from cheating, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I think that's a, that brings up a whole other, um, you know, kettle of kettle of fish that is has its own problems for sure. But I mean, part of it is that you know, what are we doing giving students multiple choice tests in the 21st century? I mean, that's what they were doing two, three hundred years ago. We should be doing better as educators, to be honest. Okay, do you think cheating is underreported in Canada? At every single university, yes, and and it's nothing new. I mean, we've got we've got research going back decades saying more than fifty percent of profs don't report cheating, even if they find it. Wow, why not? It's a hassle. I mean, you've got to document the case. Someone's got to investigate. There's got to be a lot of letters. I mean, it takes a lot of person power. And when you're dealing with you know uh, cheating circles, dozens or hundreds of students, that's a lot of man hours, people hours, putting into that, and so it becomes a real hassle. Interesting. Speaking to Professor Sarah Eaton from the University of Calgary, she's an expert in academic integrity. What are some of the more common methods of cheating, especially in the sort of digital age now where people, you can buy custom written essays online? I mean, there's, a, there's a lots of different ways you can cheat now, right? Yeah, and it's very different for most of us profs, right? Because we took our schooling, by and large, before the Internet was really prevalent, and now a lot of the, in, the cheating is Internet-enabled. So it's file-sharing sites. It's, it's sharing answers for tests. It's buying custom work online through third-party providers. It's engaging with uh, commercial file-sharing sites. So, you know, ask kids to, you know, level up by adding more documents so you can download one for your next course. I mean, these predatory third companies are operating right alongside our universities. Lots of profs still don't even acknowledge the extent to which that industry is well-funded. In, in some cases, these companies are way better off financially than our publicly funded universities, and they're out there marketing to our students on Instagram, on TikTok, on places where us old fogey profs don't even hang out. <laughs> okay, is it easy to... I, I'm sure it's probably very difficult to catch and detect this, or, or maybe it's not. I mean, if, if you have kids that are using a, an essay writing service or something and someone's writing a custom essay for you, I, I imagine that could be difficult to catch, but are, are there ways that they can, you can uh, run essays through a, some sort of detection software to, to find out if it's been plagiarized? Oh, sure. Those, those exist. But what they won't catch is the custom-written essays, right? right I've got right. a colleague in Australia, and she says, you can't design out cheating, but you sure as heck can design it in. Uh, and we do things like, you know, give students, uh, you know, write me an essay about the plot of Hamlet. That can be outsourced. Uh, when we give students multiple-choice tests, answers can be outsourced. When we're giving students the kind of assessments that can be outsourced, they will be. 
Okay, what can we do to put a check on this? Like, I'm wondering about the severity of the consequences here. UBC right now is saying they're investigating these allegations of widespread cheating in this on this math midterm. You got the, the professor for the class posted that anyone that's caught will get a zero, not just on the, te- the midterm test, but for the whole course. You would fail the entire course, and he would recommend expulsion from the university this sounds pretty severe i mean do you think that is fair punishment um what surprises me is that the prof has the authority to do that at most schools it has to go through various levels of administrators and i i wonder if the prof might have been saying that you know uh put put fear into the students to get them to come forward or admit what Mm. they've done it actually surprises me that that an individual professor would have that much authority to be honest yeah yeah. What do you think should be done? What what can be done to correct this or make it better? Well, there's a bunch of things we can do. For starters, I mean, we're students about our expectations. Fine. Uh, you know, in this day and age, let's be honest, open book tests make a lot more sense for our students because we know they're going to be engaging in file sharing. So, you know, if we set things up that, that they can use their book, open book tests, right? It doesn't mean that it compromises the integrity of the test and ask ourselves, why are we still giving tests and assignments like we did 200 years ago today? We can do better. We should be doing better. Students are not the enemy in all this. Every single person in every single school has a stake in this. Right. In in your own academic career, have you ever caught any of your own students cheating? Well, sure. I yeah. mean that I mean if you look for it, if you're attentive to it, then then you find it, right? And it's a matter yeah. of how do you deal with it? Does the school have processes? I certainly didn't, you know, tell this to my students that their entire futures were going to be on the line. I went through the internal processes, I consulted with the administrators, they made the decisions. Um, and, and yeah, we have processes for that. But I think any educator that's attentive to it, um, you'll see it if it happens. Right. I wonder if, uh, if a student gets caught, is, is that a good sort of convincing the person not to do it again? Like, and that's going to be humiliating to get caught cheating like that. Is it a, is it a yeah. question of, in your experience, if, if, a, if a student gets caught, they don't do it again, or do you see repeat offenders? You know, like in society, right, there's a small percentage of people that are serial offenders. Um, But the majority of people, if they get caught once, they're like, okay, I I get it. You know, like you get stopped at a a, a red light by by a red light camera by a policeman. You think, okay, I'm not going to do that again. Uh, And then it's just one time, and then people learn from it. So there's like maybe 5% that will become serial cheaters. Yeah. Speaking of Professor Sarah Eaton from the University of Calgary, like you mentioned that in your own experience, in your own career, when you catch students cheating, you go through the, the channels at the, your institution where you work. It, is, are those rules and processes for investigating cheating, let's say at Canadian universities, is it pretty uniform across the country or do we have kind of a patchwork of different, different rules and systems for investigating this from, from university to university? Yeah, every school is different, which is a bit of a problem, right? I know I did a study a couple years ago. I examined definitions of plagiarism across 20 Canadian universities. There is no consistency in how universities even define plagiarism. You'd think that would be something it's pretty easy to define. But some some schools would include, for example, computer code, musical composition, design. Other schools just say prose and text. So we have no consistency across our country, and it's a problem for, you know, those quality assurance bodies that deal with quality assurance and higher education. We need to get them involved. They're an important part of this conversation.
Right, welcome back. Talking about cheating and colleges and universities on the rise during COVID-19. An investigation underway at UBC right now. 100 students in a first-year math class accused of cheating on a midterm exam. My guest is Sarah Eaton from the University of Calgary. She's an expert on academic integrity. Let's go right to your phone calls. we got lots of them here. Jared in Vancouver. Hi, Jared. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm good. I'm a professor at UBC. I'm a millennial, so I understand when she speaks about kind of ingrained in the culture of a millennial with sharing files but i do disagree with the fact that that's a justification of a student cheating i don't think this is on the professors i think that students need to realize that no matter even if the opportunity is there that they're actually costing themselves uh, their educational experience when they take this kind of action because they're really focusing on the wrong thing right they're focusing on their grades rather than them actually learning which is absolutely the wrong approach for the student yeah, I'm really glad you called in. Are you seeing a lot of cheating at UBC? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's yeah. absolutely rampant. It's out of control. It's, it's, it's very difficult to deal with. Yeah, do you think the universities are, are being tough on it enough? No, I think because uh, it's really hard to prove. Um, it's very yeah. difficult to prove that a student is actually cheating. And so, um, you know, and, and as your guest has said, as a professor, it's, it's a lot of work to prove that a student is cheating. And then a lot of the time, you know, administration may not support the action you, you, um, you're recommending. And like she said, this professor probably actually doesn't have the authority to do what he's saying um, yeah. or she is saying. However, you know, I think it's the right thing to do is to, is to put the fear of God into the students. Okay, Jared, thanks a lot for calling in. Well, the student in the math case here at UBC in the message that he posted is saying that he would recommend a very severe penalty. But Sarah Eaton, let me uh, your thoughts on that. Yeah, certainly individual professors can recommend punishments, uh, and, and I'm wondering what the motive was, right, to get students to come forward, to admit what they'd done so that they could pursue a deeper investigation. Was the professor mm. angry? We don't actually know what motivated the comments, um, but uh, like the UBC professor said, uh, it's probably, um, you know, not the individual instructor. But I will agree with, the, with, the, with Jared on one point, and that's this. I don't think this is a micro problem. It's not even mm. a macro problem. This is a mega problem across every university right now during the pandemic. Wow, let's go to Ram on the line in Port Moody. Hi. Good morning, Mike. Hi there. How are you? Well, uh, good. I have to agree with um, everyone who already uh, discussed this. I actually work at a college or university, whatever you call it. I work at BCIT. I'm a faculty member there. And, uh, oh, my God, from the very beginning of this, we have been seeing this. And I actually, I don't just blame the students, I blame the ones that are enabling this. And I'm talking about when I'm reporting the process, when I actually show evidence on cheating, and I have done it, like I'm not afraid of uh, the work for uh, reporting it and so on and so, but when I do this, they bring up privacy issues. They bring up, oh, wait a second, how did you catch it? Maybe <laughs> you did something wrong. And I'm like, seriously, some, I actually have evidence that this guy copied this person, purchased this assignment on Internet. They purchased it. The companies are making a, a, a ton of money on this. When I show the evidence, I'm the one to blame. Maybe you should wow. have done something to uh, prevent this. I'm like, no, it's not my job. My job is to teach. Their job is to learn. And uh, the fact that uh, when I ask the students to keep their webcams on, because I want to know who is actually doing the test who is doing the work in the lab time in online environment, right. they say, oh, no, that's a breach of my privacy. Oh. <laughs> Ram, thank and you I'm for... Like, 
Nope. Thank you for a great call. Uh, what do you think of that, Professor Eaton? I mean, the, the, the webcam issue is interesting. Like, if you put a, if you ask a student to put a camera on during a test, could that be a check on the cheating if it, you can keep an eye on them virtually over a camera? Well, yeah, it's a, it's a highly contested topic right now for sure, right? And one thing yeah. I'll agree with Ram about is sometimes administrations are enabling the problem, right? And, and we talked about this before, how every single person, every single learning institution plays a role in upholding and enacting the integrity of our institutions. So it is, okay. uh, you know, it is part of the responsibility of the administration to support faculty members when they come right. forward with allegations. Okay, we just got one minute left. Let's squeeze in Bob in White Rock. Hi, Bob. Hi, uh, Mike. I work for Microsoft. We've been doing this for years with online uh, certification exams. They take three hours. There's a check-in process. You got to show your ID. You got to show the room. There's a camera. There's audio. Audio. There's no security requirements or uh, breaches. You're being watched the whole time, being recorded, and it's a secure browser. Nothing else can be running on your machine while the exam screen is up. Uh, and wow. if there's an auditory pickup, it actually ends the exam, and it's an automatic fail. Okay. Very interesting. Thanks for calling in. We got 30 seconds there, Professor Eaton. Your thoughts. Uh, Mike, this is a really interesting topic, and at a later time, I'd request an entire segment on surveillance technology in educational context. Well, why don't we do that? <laughs> because uh, we still have lots of people on the open line who would like to have their say. So we'll just have to have you back on. How about that? I look forward to it. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the COVID-19 pandemic in British Columbia. The Fraser Health Region has for many weeks had infection rates higher than the other health regions. Some days we've seen double or triple the numbers in Fraser Health. What are the unique challenges in this region? What a great guest I have to talk to you about that. Dr. Elizabeth Brodkin, she is the Chief Medical Health Officer in Fraser Health, the Vice President for Population Health. I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Thanks a lot for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time out of your very busy schedule. Um, when we take a look at the Fraser numbers, uh, people are look at those numbers every day and say, why are the Fraser health numbers so high compared to other health regions? Can you explain it? I think there are a number of reasons why our, our numbers are higher. Um, the first is that the Fraser Health Region has the largest population of any of the health authority regions in British Columbia. We serve uh, about 1.8 million people. Uh, in addition, our population density is the highest. That means people living closely together, and those are circumstances that make it easier for the virus to spread. Um, in addition, we're home to many of the um, essential industries that keep the lower mainland and the province going, but some of those industries and some of those work sites are associated with um, an increased risk of COVID transmission, and we have seen that reflected in some of the outbreaks that we've had to deal with. And finally, we are home to a very rich array of, of cultures and communities, but um, when uh, when those cultures and, and communities um, uh have social gatherings as part of the way they, they celebrate their life events, then that yeah. can create some difficulties in terms of COVID transmission. Yeah, there's been some focus on the South Asian community, for example, in Surrey and elsewhere in the health region. We just had the Diwali celebrations, big cultural celebration. Have there been any outbreaks uh, traced to Diwali celebrations, to your knowledge? And, and thank you for asking that. The um, the issue of social gatherings is certainly not limited to our South Asian community. This right, is uh, this right. is something that is is common among many of the cultures that we have here in Fraser Health. And the Diwali um, festival passed without any increase uh, or any spike in cases, which means that the community heard our messages and um, did what we needed them to do. And for that, we are extremely grateful. 
Okay, how about healthcare workers? I know there are a lot of healthcare workers live in, in Surrey. Is that a particularly vulnerable po- uh, population, and are we seeing high numbers there? Um, a lot of healthcare workers live in Surrey because there a lot of people live in Surrey. And yes, healthcare workers um, are a population that we watch very closely. We want to ensure that when they come into our sites that they are not getting infected as a result of, of working in our facilities, both our acute and our long-term care facilities. And we have multiple layers of uh, procedures and protections in place to ensure that we can keep them safe. What When we take a look at the high numbers in the Fraser Health region, what are their specific challenges in, in driving down these numbers? It just seems to be a hot spot, and are, are, there, are you having difficulty driving the numbers down in the health region? Um, there are, are multiple um, things that we need to do in order to manage those high numbers, and um, we went through a period in October where we increased from about 100 cases a day to about 500 cases a day, and that was a, a challenging time for us. We had to put, we had to increase our workforce significantly by, by several hundred people in order to manage that, as well as to take a very careful look at our procedures and make sure that they were coping with those numbers. Um, so we, we have a, an entire uh, team of people, a very large team of people who are dedicated to case and contact management. That includes uh, following up every single case and ensuring that they're doing what they need to do and identifying their contacts and then uh, advising the contacts about how they, um, what they need to do to um, either in terms of self-isolation or just self-monitoring. We have um, our hospitals are another area of focus for us to ensure that we can continue to admit patients and our healthcare system doesn't become overwhelmed. And finally, our long-term care facilities, which, as you know, our elders are extremely vulnerable. And we have, um, again, many layers of protections in place to try to keep them safe. Speaking to a Dr. Elizabeth Broadkin, she is the Chief Medical Health Officer in the Fraser Health Region. Speaking of long-term care, uh, one of my guests later in the show will be Ujjal Desange, the former Premier of British Columbia. He's also a former BC Health Minister, and he is one of... Uh, many leaders in the community has been speaking out about long-term care infection rates from COVID and asking for rapid testing, rapid testing for COVID to be introduced in long-term care. Do you have any thoughts on that, if that would be a good idea? Um, this is certainly a, que- a hot topic in British Columbia right now. There yeah. are rapid um, tests or point-of-care tests that are available. However, they are not as sensitive as the gold standard tests that we are currently using to diagnose COVID-19. So that that would have to be kept in mind when in- trying to interpret the results of those tests. The other piece is that a point-of-care test is only as good as the day that it's given on. So a person who has a negative point-of-care test today may not be negative tomorrow. And the point-of-care test cannot replace all of the other things that need to happen, in particular screening of healthcare workers and visitors at the door when they come into long-term care facilities to ensure that they are not bringing COVID with them. Right. So therefore, you don't think the rapid testing would be valuable? I think it may have a role to play, but it would have to be very carefully thought out and it would have to be done in a way that did not replace the other safety measures that are in place. We could not allow ourselves to become complacent and to assume that because we have these point-of-care tests in place that the other um, safety measures are no longer necessary. Okay, I'm taking a look at the COVID numbers in Fraser Health right now over the last few days and I'm wondering about strains on resources in the region. Do you have any thoughts on, for example, contact tracing? 
Uh, how far behind in contact tracing are you? We've heard Dr. Bonnie Henry flag this as, as a concern, and I've heard from parents in the, in the school system in Surrey, for example, uh, wondering about contact tracing and if families are doing their almost doing like their own contact tracing to figure out where COVID is coming from. Are, are you behind on the contact tracing system? And thanks for the question, Mike. We, we did go through a very challenging period uh, in October when our caseload went from about 100 cases a day to 500. And we had to put a, a vastly expanded workforce into place as well as to reevaluate our processes. We have been successful in doing that and we are now able to manage 500 cases a day. It's because we have hundreds of people who are working on case and contact management as well as uh, an exemplary team of, of supervisors and administrators who are supporting them in their work. Okay, so are they, are they behind though? Are they fallen, fallen far behind? No, we are able to contact about 95% of okay. our cases within 24 hours of us receiving the lab report. And then from there, we are able to contact the majority of the contacts of those cases within 24 hours of us getting the list from the case. Okay, and those are sat- those are satisfactory numbers to you, right? Those are satisfactory yeah. numbers, yes. Right, right. Okay, speaking to Dr. Elizabeth Brodkin, she is the Chief Medical Health Officer in, in Fraser Health. A lot of the, the cases seem to be centered in Surrey. Like, is Surrey a hot spot? What is it about Surrey that, ha- that has such a high caseload right now? Well, Surrey is, it has a very large population and it has a yeah. lot of population density and it has some of those risk factors that we talked about earlier, right. specific businesses and specific interest, industries, as well as it's, it's home to cultures and communities where social gatherings are an important part of, of how they celebrate life. So it has yeah. been a hot spot for us, but we have done a lot of work with the community and with community leaders in Surrey. And I'm pleased to report that although our numbers are higher than we would like them to be, our yeah. curve has at least flattened, and we are not seeing that mm. exponential increase that we saw in, in October. Okay, well, that's good to hear. Speaking of different cultural communities, we, we, we touched earlier on this on, on the South Asian community. I've heard concerns about large Christian denomination churches in the Fraser Valley, for example, being potentially vulnerable. Are, are any of these communities showing disproportionately high rates of COVID-19 transmission, like I'm thinking in the in the South Asian community in the region, are you seeing more COVID there proportionally compared to other communities? We are seeing high rates of COVID in any community or in any culture where, where social gatherings are occurring. And it is not limited to the South Asians. It's not limited to the Christians in the Eastern Fraser Valley. It's in any community where people are gathering in numbers that are just not safe right now. We need mm-hmm. everyone, uh, difficult though it is, to keep their social gatherings to their immediate household and not go beyond that. Right. And this is extremely challenging, um, but it is something that we all need to do right now. Okay, final question for you. Uh, we're at a critical point, it appears, in the, the second wave of the virus. What would be your general message to listeners out there right now in the Fraser Health Authority here as we try to get on top of this in the weeks ahead? My message would be is that we all have a household bubble, and within our household bubble, we are safe, we can socialize, we can hug each other, we can be together, but we don't have a work bubble, and we don't have a soccer bubble, and we don't have a yoga bubble. We need to keep our bubble to our immediate household and outside of our household if we're going to go to work or to go to school or to go to recreational activities. We have to do those things in a COVID-safe way. Thank you for coming on today. You're most welcome. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about a disturbing trend in animal cruelty now, and this is a disturbing one, and it's botched 
at-home neutering of cats. So when I first heard this story, I was shocked. I thought, you've got to be kidding me. Who the hell would try to neuter a cat at home, end up physically harming the cat? I mean, that's just appalling. Well, there have been three cases like that reported in the last two weeks. Let's talk about it now with my guest, Marcy Moriarty, Chief Prevention and Enforcement Officer at the SPCA. I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Hi, Marcy. Hi, thanks for having me on. Okay, this is terrible news to hear that this has happened to, to some cats. Can, so can you tell me, I guess, I guess in the least disturbing way possible, like what happened here? Well, as you mentioned, I mean, everything is wrong about this particular um, situation. In fact, I struggle to see how this is an information gap issue. Um, In this day and age, I think that for somebody to think that it is okay to um, try and do a home neuter um, by way of, in this case, using elastics um, to try and cut off the circulation in the scrotum is just absolutely uh, appalling and unfortunately one of the cats in in this particular case um, paid with their life um, people wow. do not have to do that uh, right. to ensure that their animals are spayed and neutered yeah I, I can't imagine why anyone would think that that would be some sort of an, an an option available to them and I'm very sad to hear that one cat died as a result so you had three cases like this right how are the other two cats doing doing okay again yeah. this is something we we see sporadically it and again it's a tragedy sometimes though it's done intentionally again it's not uh, a, it's not an information gap and um just to put it out there that's against the law this is yeah. against the law um you know absolutely spaying and neutering your neutering your animals is one of the most important things you can do for their health um but that's done by a veterinarian uh, so, I, again, I don't think the vast majority of public would ever consider it. But just in case anybody thinks it's funny, it's against the law and you could end up in jail. Okay. Are there investigations underway into these these three reported cases we've seen here recently? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And we have seen convictions um, in similar situations. So uh, this is not something that people should be ever attempting. Yeah. Funny yeah. that I have to say that, actually. No, but, I know. Uh, I, you know, we it's, do. It's astonishing that that would even enter into the minds of someone. So, you know, bottom line is do do not do this. Um, what if people can't afford or maybe they think they, they don't have the money to pay for spaying or neutering of their pet? Are there options for them? Can they get it done free somewhere? There are absolutely options. And we'd encourage people to explore on our website we, we have a number of different low-cost spay-neuter programs available. There's grants to um, other organizations that are doing this very important work. And one great thing is if you do end up adopting an animal through um, either the BCSPCA or I'd say most other rescue organizations, um, oftentimes that comes with a spay and neuter. Uh, well, definitely at the SPCA, all of our animals are spayed and neutered prior to adoption, but it's part of the adoption package. So that's that's another bonus and a bit of a plug for, for going the adoption option. Okay, that's great. So people can find the information on those low-cost spay and neuter programs on your website, correct? Yes, at spca.bc.ca, and then just type in uh, spay and neuter. Okay, that's great to hear. My guest is Marcy Moriarty, Chief Prevention and Enforcement Officer at the SPCA. Marcy, let's talk a little bit about uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and how that's impacting your the great work that you guys do there at the SPCA. Can you update us on that? Well, I mean, like so many of us in organizations, in March, we, we obviously had to pivot um, and really relook at um, how, 
how we do our operations. And I think there were some incredible innovations that happened. Uh, you know, we saw a lot of people who suddenly were home thinking, you know what, this might be the time to welcome an animal into their home. And so we saw adoptions and interest in adoptions really spike. And, and we've really moved to a safe um, online option that's, that I think, you know, I, I see positives about that going forward. We've seen, too, a lot of people um, looking for interest in areas around training, um, training of their dogs. Now that they're home all day, they're like, whoa, that, that issue is, is becoming more um, uh, something they want to address. And we have a, um, an, what's called an animal kind um, training program where trainers get certified in uh, positive reinforcement-based training that's scientifically um, based and, and works. So there's some exciting opportunities, I think, for the public right now who are home with their animals. And I'm yeah. for me, I was a foster fail during COVID, and I now have a kitten, a cat. I never <laughs> thought I would. <laughs> okay, that's great. So for people who are thinking, I think you're absolutely right. We, we are seeing an, an, up, an uptake on people getting pets into their homes during COVID-19. People are spending more time at home. So people, yeah, they're getting dogs, they're getting cats. What is your recommendation for getting an, a puppy or a kitten? Uh, do you guys have a lot of pets up for adoption there at SPCA right now? Well, we definitely invite people to look on our website first. Obviously, we're doing it by um, appointments. And so uh, I'd, I'd say we probably have more cats than dogs at the moment. So yeah. um, there, there are other, obviously, avenues to um, people can explore through other breed rescues, for other rescues. Um, or if you are choosing to go through a breeder, we have some great resources again online and how to ensure that you're, you're supporting um, positive breeding practices. I think the most important thing to consider is, you know, look at your lifestyle long term, you know, 10 years uh, down the road. We, we won't always necessarily all of us be at home. So you have to factor that into your consideration when you look to get, um, you know, an animal into your home. Yeah, do you think it's a great idea to do a rescue animal? Like, I got lots of friends who have a rescue dog. Um, sometimes they're brought in from outside of the country. Like, maybe they come from Mexico. I have a, I have a buddy of mine who's got a dog that was rescued off the, off the streets in Mexico. Is that a good idea, do you think, to bring dogs in, dogs in from the, out, of the, out of the country? Or do you think there are enough, there are enough uh, unwanted animals that are available right here at home? Such a complex That's issue. A tough I one, mean, I know. there's there's some challenges with respect to importation of different diseases, etc. You also want to make sure you're supporting, um, you know, a, a rescue that is actually a rescue and doing good work. And then also considering what you need to be prepared for. If let's say you are bringing an animal that's used to, you know, living on the streets of a beach somewhere to a downtown Vancouver apartment, it can be done. We just it definitely is an area that I think you have to be putting in some good due diligence and research. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not going to lie. It's, it's, it's a complex um, yeah. issue that I think people who are considering need to do their research first. Okay. And for people who are buying from a breeder, you touched briefly on that. Um, what would you recommend or sort of the fundamental homework that people should do to make sure they're buying from an, an, an ethical breeder? Well, you know, one of the best things is the fact that you're, the breeder likely should be asking you just as many questions as you're asking them. Uh -huh. Good breeders um, breed, you know, infrequent litters. They know a lot about their breed. They want to match their dog with the right family. They provide contracts, they neuter, health certificates. Ideally, I know COVID makes it a challenge being able to visit where those puppies are raised. 
asking them all of the questions on how are they socialized? What's your health program? What's your breeding program? To be honest, if it seems too good to be true, uh, if they say, come meet me in a parking lot and here's a great puppy, uh, you know, um, for $500, I, you know, I think your spotty sense should be, should be raised. Again, there's some good resources on our website. There's incredible work being done, again, by good breeders. Unfortunately, we don't yet have our breeder regulations up in legislation. There was a movement um, so that we would see a system where breeders are inspected and regulated um, provincially. Hopefully, we'll see that at some point in the future. All right, welcome back to the show. This Tuesday, December 1st, is CKNW Kids Fund Pledge Day. We may not be gathering in person this year, but we'll still be raising money all day on CKNW, bringing you inspiring stories from the BC Kids supported by your donations. Make a difference by making a pledge. Details at cknwkidsfund.com. CKNW Kids Fund Pledge Day is this Tuesday, December 1st. Okay, returning to my conversation now with my guest, Marcy Moriarty. She is the Chief Prevention and Enforcement Officer at the SPCA. Marcy, when you were mentioning about the the campaign for regulations around dog breeders in British Columbia, I was kind of getting some deja vu because I, I remember talking about this years ago maybe even with yourself and others like th- this campaign's been going on for a long time people have been looking for this for quite a while right uh, it's definitely thing something that's been on the minds of the public for some time um you know we, we absolutely had worked a few years ago um with legislation around this area and i i think that there's an opportunity to explore um you know with the new government uh, going forward there's there's lots of different priorities in animal welfare um one thing though too is is this is an issue for people Puppy mills and poor breeding situations only occur because um, unsuspecting there's an unsuspecting market out there for it. And I no. think if you have the ability to choose and and have some sort of um, reassurance that look this this breeder is following at least a basic set of guide- guidelines, I think there's an opportunity um, to explore that. Okay, that's very interesting. Let's talk a little bit more about some of the uh, the COVID nineteen programs that you guys have going over there at at the SPCA. So a lot, you know, people are struggling. Some people are struggling during this pandemic. And do you offer uh, emergency boarding? I understand and 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 food banks for for pets. Is that right? Well, Mike, as you mentioned, you know, there's a lot of people who are struggling right now, and and yeah. these people have their pets, and oftentimes that's their they're one thing that's getting them and their family, helping them through and cope. And we appreciate that. And we're so um, grateful to our many donors and supporters and partners who, who have donated food um, and supplies and so that we can set up either our own food banks in different communities or partner with um, organizations like the Salvation Army to, to distribute um, pet food along, you know, when people are picking up food for their family, uh, pet food, Pets are part of their family. So we have a network of food banks across um, BC and we'd encourage people who are looking, again, go to our website and type in food bank to look for their local or call our call center if you're in need of support. Um, that That is a program where we're really wanting to be there for um, for people in those needs. We, we want people to stay with their animals and stay healthy. Um, they can also call, it's important, this number, our call center number right. is one eight five five. Six two two seven seven two two, and that's where again they can find out more information 
around this. And, and that's a very important number because we also, again, that emergency boarding that you mentioned, yeah. um, you know, whether it's somebody who doesn't have other, uh, another network and they suddenly are hospitalized, um, we can help look after their, their pet um, temporarily. Also, this is another really sad um, uh, part of COVID is we, we are seeing um, the, that uptick in, in violent situations in the home. And so if individuals, women and children who, who are needing to, um, uh, to, to flee the home, um, they've often start show, you know, are hesitant to do so if they have to leave the, behind their pet. And we want um, to, them to know that they can reach out to us and we do provide that compassionate boarding. So wow. um, nobody should have to make that decision um, and, and their personal safety will look after their animal. Wow, that's amazing. Like the range of services you're offering there are incredible. I encourage people to ch- check out the website if, the, if they are in that situation. Just, I just got a couple minutes left here, Marcy. Let me ask you about, we talked earlier on the number of people who are getting pets during COVID-19. There's lots of indicators that people are getting puppies in droves here, spending more time with their pets as they, as they stay home. You mentioned a little bit about training, right? So training a puppy can be, can be tricky. Maybe if people don't have any experience with that, can you talk a little bit about the training programs that you have there? Absolutely. It's so funny how many people I, I've stopped while I'm walking my dog and they have puppies and they're all like, oh, you know, we, they're biting or they're getting into things at home. And so it's so exciting. We have a program called Animal Kind, which is an accreditation program. And currently we have a wildlife accreditation program, but also one for dog training. So when you're looking for that right trainer, um, we have an option where you can go on the website, you can find trainers in your community who are Animal Kind accredited. And again, follow that science-based results-driven but positive reinforcement training. And um, it is really important to get that training right off the bat. And I'm also going to put a pitch in because it's now Christmas time and everybody's putting up, um, you know, their, their holiday decorations. And when you have a new pet in the home, I'm learning this uh, as I went to put up my tree, um, you have to look at pet safety. Um, and oh. uh, whether you have a cat or a dog or a kitten, you need to look with, it's almost like a newborn baby. Get on your hands and knees and see, what are they going to get into? And how do I need to modify my holiday decorations? Okay, last question for you, Marcy. How is the budget doing over there for SPCA? I mean, you guys are not government, you're not government funded, I recall, right? We absolutely are not. And right. so like any charity right now, we are relying on people's, um, you know, kindness. Consider giving gifts of um, donations to charity. If Visit our website. We have incredible ways where you can, you know, fund a, a, um, a wildlife rehabilitation of, a, of an animal for um, a certain amount. You can help with puppy care. You can help fund medical needs or help out other members in your community. So we just want people um, to continue, open up your hearts and uh, think of uh, the animals this year in your charitable giving. Thanks for the great work you guys do over there at the SPCA, Marcy. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for always having us on.